But apart from my horsey interests, um, any art that moves me, you will you will sense a connection with the artist and what makes their life worthwhile and their work worthwhile. And so in my work, the horse is also symbolic in that way, in the, the sort of reiteration of that image is very important to me because it's been important in my life. Hi, I'm Ty Snaith and this is A World of Her Own, a series of conversations with Australian women artists I respect and admire. Today, I'm chatting with an Aussie cultural legend, not our Nicole or our Keith, but our Jenny. After growing up in suburbia on the outskirts of Melbourne in the 60s and 70s and finding her freedom astride her pony, Jenny Watson went on to become one of our most successful art exports. She's represented by galleries in Europe and Australia and spends her time between the two. When I met her in person, I immediately identified with her. She is undoubtedly a woman made of the real stuff. Grit, sweat, tears and paint. Maybe a bit of horsehair in the mix too. With a truly international career, Jenny still manages to be quintessentially Australian. Today we discuss what it means to embrace being an Australian artist and how that goes down overseas. We talk about women and wildness and about how rare and important it is to see broken, naughty and unruly ladies represented in paintings, not just in magazines and movies. Jenny outlines her fascinating, largely unconscious practice of using a cast of versions of herself, the other Jennies, as a way of trying things out in her mind both in dreamlike scenarios and future projections. So strap yourself in for a jet-setting trip down the rabbit hole with a woman who knows how to tap into her weirdest dreams and unbridled passions. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you. And today, just for those listening at home, it's a little bit different, might sound a bit different, because we are interstate. Uh, recording in the sunny, sunny state of Brisbane, or Queensland, where Jenny lives. So it's just a little bit, little bit different, but just the same kind of format. So, Jenny, um, you've lived, you've lived in Brisbane for nearly while. twenty years now. And what made you leave Melbourne? Well, I, I've got horses as a hobby. I wanted to put the horses on my own property, and um, I did that and built a house to go with it. And I was offered, was offered a really good teaching job at Queensland College of Art three days a week. So all those things came into play. And I was ready for some sort of a lifestyle change. I'd been working in Europe for sort of seven or eight years and felt that I could live somewhere else. And um, yeah, big change, but it was good. Yeah, and so your horses, I mean, you had them in Melbourne before that, obviously. Yeah, yeah, I had horses on adjustment for a long time before that. And so you could live with them here, which yeah, is a bonus, that's right. I guess. Yeah, yeah. it's mm. always different to have them where you live, isn't mm. it? It's part of your life. Mm. I grew up riding horses as well. Mm -hmm. And I think po possibly the, I guess the gateway for me into your work was purely identifying with that, um, ah, with, okay. with the horses. Which yeah. I guess a few people do do the same thing, like identify with the horse mm. in different ways. And 
I was thinking about that the other day, reading the great book that was put out through the MCA show that you had recently, mm. The Fabric of Fantasy. Just thinking about that connection between a human and horse, mm. which is quite a primal connection, but then more about between a woman and a horse, mm. and whether you have thoughts on that, I'm sure you do. Well, <clears throat> there's sort of two ways I can answer that question. One is that I am actually one of those horsey girls. I had a pony and a horse when I was much younger, and then went out and bought a horse at age 30 when I'd been exhibiting for 10 years and thought, well, you know, there's just got to be more to life than painting shows and having shows and went out and bought a horse as a lifestyle change. But apart from my horsey interests, um, any art that moves me, you will, you will sense a connection with the artist and what makes their life worthwhile and their work worthwhile mm. and so in my work the horse is also symbolic in that way in that the sort of reiteration of that image is very important to me because it's been important in my life it's about living yeah, yeah like the real stuff yeah i mean a horse is a, a huge sort of positive energy source incredible and, um, yeah you know it's one of the few animals that we've been with for a very long time. Yeah, and no, they've so been completely domesticated and yeah. pulled wagons and gone into battle <laughs> and been a performance animal and jumped high and it, it's done more or less anything we asked it to do. What I always loved about horses and I'm I'm really enamoured by horses and always have been. Oh. Feel very close. You know, when people say you're a dog or a cat person, I always say I'm a, I'm a mm. horse person. But what I love about them is that they're bigger than us they can overpower us at any second if they wanted to mm -hmm. and yet they want to like if you if you create the right bond with the horse it wants to help you they yeah. want to be with you and they want to help you and yeah. more than a dog or a cat yes. they actually serve you in a way that's yeah like they, they do else. have an affinity to work with us but i think that's probably been to do with um the thousands of years yes. of domestication yeah yeah but I, even those notions of like breaking a horse mm. or um, I think people that haven't ridden horses sort of have that like oh it's cruel or whatever. <laughs> well, my partner thinks it's cool to ride horses which it's it's hard to explain unless you've had that bond with a horse but. Um, you know no, philosophically I can see that point of view mm. um, because it's one being saying that they have the right mm. to sit on another being's back. But they let you. Well, if they're, if they're trying to let you, um, I mean, they probably wouldn't think, I'm dying to take someone around for a ride. <laughs> but you know when they don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, philosophically, right down the scale of um, how we treat animals, mm. I can probably understand nearly any point of view. Mm. Yeah, I mean, on the scale of meat-eating, which is a fairly mm. interesting topic, mm. Some people are totally vegetarian, some people are totally vegan. Yeah. Some people say that they will eat certain meat because it's not factory farm. Yeah, well, some people they, say meat, animals without eyes. Have you heard that one? Yeah, <laughs> I've heard someone saying that she wouldn't eat anything that had a face. Um, I mean, there's every position on the sliding scale of that attitude. So there's every position you can imagine on the sliding scale of whether we should use horses for our 
domination. But I guess once you've had that relationship with the horse, it's not actually domination. It's a it's a very subtle balance of mm. respect that you only know if you've been close to a horse. Is that it's not it's them letting it's it's sort of like a give and take between mm. the two forces that be. Like we're smarter, mm. but they're stronger, and mm. so you're constantly asking for a give and take. But but there's something else that for me has I've thought about a lot is that idea of kind of wildness, and as a mm. woman as well, growing up. My best memories as a little girl are, you know, like galloping on my pony and singing at the same time oh. or, you know, like in the rain or those things that you don't get just from riding your bike down the street. It's, yeah. a, it's a sort of pure wildness that... Yeah, I mentioned that in, in the book mm. you just read, that um, for a teenage girl in the 60s, a horse was an incredible means of escape. Mm. You just get on and go. Yeah, and gallop. And you, you don't have to tell anyone where you're going and why and... Whatever. Mm. Mm. And it's a freedom that you identify with when you see your pictures as well. Yeah, yeah, to some extent. And in terms of, I mean, there's quite a lot of theory written on um, female sexuality and horses as mm. well. And I know that, I mean, in other paintings that don't include horses mm. of your work, sexuality or female sexuality is something that is quite um, laid bare. It's quite honestly depicted that could only be painted by a woman. Do, yeah. you, do you see a parallel between those ideas of like sexual drive or um, and the horses? That... Um, I wouldn't want to answer in a way that would be cartoonish. Yeah. <clears throat> but I think that probably the, <clears throat> the best way for me to explain the presence of some of the images in my work and that includes horses, is that um, those beings are totally at ease. You know, they're, they're doing what they do and no one's telling them what to do and um, it's a very strong sense of self, mm -hmm. which I guess, I guess spills over into how you feel about yourself sexually mm -hmm. or in your private life. That sort of conf confidence to be, be, even be sexual at all, really, I guess, is... Mm. Well, it, I'm not, you know, a psychoanalyst, but <laughs> I would say that any any person who's making art, particularly women, have to know who they are and what they want out of life. Yeah. Mm. And, and, I mean, your work's often been called autobiographical, but in some ways it is. In some of, some of them it's obvious that it is, but in others it's almost like the image of the woman or the girl... Mm can stand in for almost any woman or girl viewing the work, really. Yeah. And that's a, that's a conscious thing. Well, it's, um, you know, first there was me, the teenage suburban girl that, you know, is quite a figure in a lot of the works. Mm -hmm. Then there's what I call the, the older egos, the, the, other, the other me's that I could have been or might have been or might want to be and might even be in my lifetime. Mm. So even in the future. Yeah. yeah. So there, you know, that's a sort of... Um, constant cast of sort of changing identities mm. yeah where i allow myself in the paintings to go anywhere like try it out almost like yeah hypothetical like a hypothetical self yeah it is yeah, yeah and so. some of them are identifiable by means of symbols like alice is obviously mm. one that everyone could kind of identify the, the white smock of but are there others that you can identify um, well, the other the other thing's interesting because I, I think I probably originally just took 
you know, what had been a, an image from childhood reading. You know, no, no big deal, mm -hmm. not like, you know, this is my symbol and with this I can say so on and so on. It's just a good It idea. wasn't theoretical mm -hmm. in that way. It was probably just a familiar mm -hmm. figure from the childhood library. But strangely enough, Alice does go through all that morphing and big mm -hmm. and small and Fantasy. drink me and mm -hmm. hallucinogenic and mm -hmm. meeting strange rabbits. And so in a way that set a sort of template for where the other Jennies went. <laughs> and, and in fact, I dare say even taking myself off to Europe and New York was mm. one of those alter egos. You and know, so part, part of me sort of said, you, you can do this. And, yeah. you know, as, as any artist out there who has had a go, they know it's not for the faint-hearted. No, and you had to have that voice or that picture of that Jenny that could do that. I had to be myself. Mm. And what's really interesting is that my... My first break out of Australia was in Germany, possibly the toughest market for a new artist to emerge. Mm. When, was, when was that? Uh, 1990. I had my first show in Frankfurt with a gallerist called Ernst Hilger, who is in Vienna now. But um, when, I, when I had that show, um, when a new artist emerges on the European market and gets a few boxes ticked, you know, like good reviews, good museum directors saying, oh, yes, that's interesting. Yeah. You, you actually, you turn over a lot of work. Mm -hmm. I was being handed fistfuls of old German marks. I suddenly had so much money cash in hand that I, I thought, I could live here. And I was kind of managing to speak a pretty basic German and spending a lot of time there. Das is good. Yeah, but it was, it was that option mm -hmm. of really thinking about living there that I... I realised how much of an Aussie I was, mm. you know. I like to walk out in the morning in bare feet. Yeah. I like to go in bare feet if I feel like it to the local newspaper shop and get a newspaper. Mm. Um, I am pretty Aussie. Yeah. And um, I only found that by sort of really confronting the thing of, well, I could do in Germany, I could be an artist working in Germany, which in some ways, um, that's a dream for a lot of people. Yeah. But the reality is actually so different. You didn't want to. To being an Aussie and making art in Australia. What was the, you know, like what was the feedback as from collectors that made you want to, that, you know, did you know what they liked in your work? Did you know what they saw and they wanted more of? <coughs> the, the word that was mentioned mostly by other dealers and people at art fairs and curators was fresh. Mm. It was very clear that that work had not come out of a German academy. Hmm. You know, some youngish woman, age 39, hmm. painting on beautiful Indian cottons of self-referential fantasy figures. Yeah, it was, it was very clearly something different. And that's one of the great things about the German market. It's, you, it's open to, to new things. Yes, but it is all-encompassing. And do you think flipping that around, I mean, do you think that's also something that Australians need to consider still about themselves or something we might have that we could offer? Is that, that we may have a different perspective that's fresh? Or do you think that's over now? <laughs> like, um, is that chance gone? It's a really complicated question mm. and I'm going to answer that in a way that no one would ever imagine. <clears throat> Nicole Kidman and Keith Urban are the quintessential Hollywood successful couple. Australian couple mm. and they are so Aussie. Mm, Keith right. Urban was brought up at Caboolture yeah, near yeah, here. Yeah. 
His parents used to go and see bands. He would fall asleep as a young child on a beer-stained carpet. She's pretty Aussie too. Yeah. Yeah. And part of the reason mm. they're just absolutely the top of their industries is because they they haven't sacrificed mm. that Aussiness to get ahead. And that's something that and when that's you... that's crucial. Yeah. And and there are too many aspiring Australian artists who think that the way to get somewhere in Europe is to be European. Yeah. <laughs> like you know, else. The, the European clothes, the European yeah. style, the European attitude. Yeah. doesn't work. They've got enough of them over there. Yeah. Maybe we need to think about what we actually are here, what we have. That well, I think we are, and I think that <clears throat> the storming of Hollywood's a really good example mm. of that. I mean, it's absolutely chock full of Aussies. Aussies, yeah. Well, you just got to look at Berlin as well. Yeah. Right? Full yeah. of Melburnians. Yeah. Um, so no, so I sort of, yeah, I was an Aussie out there. It was great to be showing in Germany. I showed in Germany for a long time. I stayed there for three months of the year. I bought a big old Mercedes. I drove all over awesome. Europe in it. Um, I really, I really took it on. But I knew that I had to come back to my little house and walk out in my garden in bare feet. Ride your horse. Yeah, yeah. ride my horse, yeah. going by the age. I, I had to do that yeah. Aussie thing. But it's funny because when we were coming here in the car, we were talking, you know, not in, not on the recording, but talking about some people of your time that um, and men that didn't, couldn't, couldn't deal with some, there's a certain type of uh, skill set that you need socially on that scene. And whether it's actually here or overseas, mm. there's a certain type of confidence you need to have in yourself at those openings and to meet those collectors and and that's something that you obviously have like that you know I you know I was once I started sort of spending a fair bit of money to be in Europe a lot of the time I wanted it to work so I I learned German mm. <laughs> I had learned French at school so I actually yeah. went to Europe armed with two European languages that was really good helpful yeah and respected mm. yeah and did you ever feel like I mean a lot of artists battle with you know self-doubt or feeling like they're not part of a scene I mean that must have been quite confronting for you to be completely the other in that well the the really interesting thing about taking on a, a new context like that is if they think you're good it, it actually takes a fair bit of you know they they don't do things by halves because um galleries anywhere but particularly in Europe it's it's high-end real estate mm -hmm. So they're not intending to make a mistake. So by the time you said, yes, we'll do a show, they're pretty serious they're about They're invested it. in you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... But you said some people couldn't cope with that kind of pressure. Well, I, I think a lot of people have had to go and just realised it's not for them, mm. and I think that's absolutely fine. Mm. But, um, yeah, no, once, once they've decided and they um, sort of give you a go, then... Um, I guess you have to be able, you're expected to um, walk the walk. Yeah. You know, that, that it is not for the faint-hearted. And you've probably got to love that, right? I think you sort of have to get into it and enjoy it. And, yeah. You know, there, there is a great thing about, um, you know, a really good German museum buying work or a Kunstverein offering you a show. And you do know, you you're getting into the depths of how the German art world works. But then how, I mean, that's one thing to be over there, that happening, that kind of story happening. Mm. But then... In Australia at that time, like what was happening here? Were people were people criticising that your move to be overseas, or were people um, finding you more interesting because of that? Or there was there was a mixture of both. Um, 
at the time there was a curator called Renee Block who'd come here to do a Sydney Biennale and he was around and he in fact published a portfolio of prints that I was in. Um, but he said, he said to me personally, look, don't worry about Germany, your work is fresh, it's different, you're going to do incredibly well in Germany. The people who sort of knew the scene were, were very um, enthusiastic for me. They thought it was just the right thing and as it, as it happened it was. So the people in Australia, did that then just propel your career here? No, not necessarily, no. There was sort of, there was no leap in opportunities or sales here because I was working in Germany, no. And that's where Australia can be a bit um, claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. And that's why I still say that, you know, Melbourne and Sydney should not see themselves as influential world art cities. Mm. They're, they're great cities and the amount of art activity that's going on all the time, you know, there's a Melbourne Triennale, there's mm. some. That big, there was that big show in Melbourne now. There's the Sydney Festival. I mean, in terms of art being out there in the culture, you, you can't there. fault it. Mm. But you cannot say it drives careers into mm. the Northern Hemisphere. Did you feel almost like at the time it was... You know, were you that embraced here, though? Or did you seek overseas? Because that, that seemed more like... Uh, I don't know, not easy, but I, like... Well, this is interesting. I, mm. I guess... Um, I wanted something overseas when I'd been showing here for about 10 years mm -hmm. uh, because I had my first show in 73. Mm -hmm. By 83, after a good 10 years in the scene, in a way you sort of see what's going to be possible and mm -hmm. you know where you're probably going to be and how you're going to be living. Yeah. So that was when I thought, you know, oh no, there's got to be more. Mm -hmm. So Roslyn Oxley had gone to the opening of an Australian accent, the project by John Caldor at mm -hmm. PS1. Mm -hmm. And um, yep. she'd met a lot of New York dealers there and they'd said to her, of course, in a party situation, oh, if you've got good artists, send them over. Mm -hmm. So I, I took her at her word. Handy. And I sent letters to 10 galleries with Roslyn Oxley letterhead. It was totally distinguished. Mm -hmm. And I went and sat in a cheap hotel room in New York where 10 galleries said, we are not looking at new artists. Mm. And I thought, right, this is obviously harder than it looks. Mm. And I went back home, that was, um, that would have been about 84. Went back home and thought, if it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. Probably that experience in itself made me into a fatalist. Mm -hmm. And then it did happen. Um, four years, four or five years after that. But even a step before that, I mean, I think most of the audience listening to this show are possibly women like at the start of their careers or early mid-career. I'm only saying that because of myself, but um, <laughs> even that breaking into like being represented by Rosalind Oxley or coming out of the scene that you came out of mm -hmm. when you realised you were an artist and you'd struck on your style that you knew mm. worked, mm. that you had to be quite, um, not aggressive, but you had to really chase that, right? Like you... No, Roslyn, um, in 1982, Roslyn was opening her gallery mm -hmm. and she was looking for artists. Oh, okay. Yeah, she was... She wanted good artists that she'd heard about and um, so this is very unusual, but she came to me and asked me. And um, you've stayed with her ever since. Yeah, and I've stayed... That's actually yeah. amazing because that yeah. very rarely happens, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. And the start of the... No, no, the 
obviously Gowrie is like a family spot. But to me. be there from the beginning is quite fortuitous. Well, it's been a it's been a great journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're lucky. But I mean, even you teach now, like you teach mm-hmm. at is it Queensland Q- QCA? Yeah, QCA. Yeah. And so, what do you tell your students about that that point of sort of entering the um, that world? You know, but like we, really. <laughs> well, we talk about this a lot, of course. Yeah. Um, students want to know how it's done, and. Um, their questions are usually, um, they're not like asking about how you manage your career path. They're, um, they're more random. <laughs> you know, that, so a student will just say to me something like, what commission do you pay in New York? <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah, really yeah. random, but fortunately I can answer And that. it's painting a picture. Like, it's people, yeah, people want to yeah. know, yeah. They want to know, you know, who pays for framing. Uh, who does pay for framing? Um... <laughs> Um, the way it's always worked for me is um, I send my work's role to the gallery, mm-hmm. they pay for framing and then they take that off my sales. Okay. So the artist actually does, the artist always pays usually for pays for the work to presentation point, mm-hmm. yeah, for mm-hmm. you know, yep. the opening night out. It's part of the work. The yeah. artist paid for that and then, you know. but. But different. they deal with the pragmatics of it. I like yeah. that. That's a good technique. Yeah. At least yeah. you don't have to... But diff- different around. artists would have different deals. Yeah. I mean, the, the more you go up the scale mm. and you hear bits and pieces of gossip about the sort of, you know, household names, the, the deals... There are that. different stories. There are different there. stories and there are people different have deals. very good deals. Yeah. Some people have really not very good deals. Some have not very good deals. Some have... I mean, in, in the um, late 80s and early 90s when there was... A lot of money being made in art, probably to a point that it probably won't ever be repeated. But some people were paying galleries ninety percent because the amount that they were making justified that. Wow. Yeah. Now at fifty percent seems kind of extortionate, but mm. yeah, that's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah, they were the heady days. I mean, in a way, that they were the days that probably uh, Australian artists aspired to. Mm. <clears throat> and um, no, then it sort of crashed and it's, I shouldn't say it's been going downhill ever since, but it, it, it's much more of a sober business now yeah. than um, those heady days. And you would know from your students that there's a lot of different options now. And yeah, different yeah which is, I think that's really good. It's sort of essential, isn't it? Really but good, one, really different, yeah. One thing I wanted to talk about was just um, the correlation of painting women, like painting pictures of women in, in your work, women and girls, mm. and whether you consciously think about that representing women as part of your subject matter in terms of the broader landscape of what's out there, like visual photo that's out there in collections or museums or... Um, look, I've never been... I consider myself political with a small p. Mm-hmm. I mean, in that I'm aware of issues, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to tread on anyone's toes in that way. But I'm not, I'm not political in the sense that every image in every painting means something yeah. and it talks about women in art collections. And, no, not, not that way. But you must be aware of it, that you're, you're yeah. upping those quotas. Well, right? I think, I think um, if, if a woman artist is painting images of women and girls and they're called alter egos and they're to do with her and they're to do with her growing up in a small city, Melbourne, mm. in the 60s, 
it's got to be political. Yeah. But, but I'm not doing it sort of hammering the table with my politics. So, so in many ways you were doing it slightly unconsciously? Unconsciously and, and very personally. Mm. You know, there's a huge element in um, what I would call suburban dreaming. Mm. Uh, you know, all those people who were out there in the suburbs in the 50s and 60s who had dreams beyond that. Mm. And some emerged and some didn't. Mm. But, but developing a sort of dream landscape was a very important part of that. And positioning yourself within mm. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I love about your work that, I mean, I've always had a big obsession with women that are depicted in the mass media or popular culture or in art as slightly... Dis- not dishevelled, but um, not not perfect, you know, that, that have problems, like actually put out there as, as strong women, but that have issues, you know, like we do, because it's quite rare. Like I love finding those talented geniuses like Amy Winehouse or people that that aren't perfect. No, you that's know? it. Yeah. And I feel like your work has this, it almost elevates women that are a little bit broken to a platform of like this is actually real women you know yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're taught that you've either got to be perfect mm. or or you're invisible um a little bit broken or just sort of so out there and so naughty yeah. that it's almost intolerable you know i mean john jett have you seen the runaways yeah. movie yeah i mean that's pretty amazing another one i want to see is um I, Tonya, Tonya Harding. I haven't seen that. Oh, I, I skater. But, um, yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of behaviour by women that's um, not discussed in mainstream culture, but the psychology of why girls end up being like that is pretty, pretty interesting. It is really mm. interesting. And I think, I mean, being a woman and being often in those situations with your partner or with whatever situation you're in, trying to justify that line, that sort of fine line between madness and um, having your shit together, or creative mm-hmm. genius. And yeah. For some reason, men throughout history have been allowed to be kind of like these ramshackle creative geniuses, and yet when a woman does it, you're insane. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's a lot of theory about that. I mean, there's a theory that um, Pollock was influenced by Lee Krasner's little image paintings. Mm. There's a theory that Barbara Hepworth was the first one to pierce a stone sculpture with a hole mm. before Henry Moore. Of course, yeah. If you go looking, mm. there's a lot of theory that supports the fact that um, women might have been the radical advisors to... Well, no doubt. But, uh, but I guess the difference, I mean, with painting those women, you are putting them... And being in a position where you know those paintings will end up in a cabin in the institution, you're immortalising them in a way that yeah. they're not going to be overlooked, mm. which still happens. I mean, you know, like that still happens or it's still yeah. cleaned up, you know, mm. like still neatened up for the patriarchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's that's sort of part of the reason why I decided to use the, the really ordinary deadpan suburban voice mm. because that's, it's not heroic and it's not famous and it's not considered to be important. <clears throat> but... Um, you know, it's amazing what can be... How powerful it is. Yeah, and sort about in that, what you might call a non-context. That, that idea of voice as well, it's interesting that you say suburban voice rather than suburban story or mm. like picture or mm. setting. Mm. But a lot of your works, particularly the ones that have the text and the painting, mm. 
for me, almost feel like a screenplay or like a TV, a snippet from TV. Yeah. So do you consider yourself as much a writer as a painter? Look, I think um, any sort of creative act that resounds with people, mm. and it almost doesn't matter what, what the label is. is. Mm. You know, I'm thinking of Patti Smith. Yeah, you know, I thought Patti Smith before. Was she a poet? Was she a musician? Was she a performer? It doesn't matter. She's just Patti Smith. It was just so yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I I watched a lot of television, being in a suburban situation. Mm. Um, so my sort of development of um, that interior script, mm -hmm. which I might call, you know, the voice in your head, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that had a chance to be really developed. And almost in a, t I mean, I don't know if you've done any psychoanalysis or, th or therapy in that way, but actually similar to quite a few artists that I've interviewed mm -hmm. and I'm interested in, mm -hmm. it's a way of you getting out or sorting out those voices that are almost like in your head but or in all of our heads like it's a um, collective female mm. head or something mm. weird almost an unconscious female well suburban Melbourne is quite a weird place for a, an original voice to emerge from yeah and and I dare say um, the wonderful Nick Cave fits into that category. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Most people, or John Campbell, or Howard sure, Arkley, absolutely. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, most people find that whole existence so dulling mm. and sort of you're anaesthetised mm. that it, the voice doesn't emerge. Mm. Whereas occasionally it, it does. But when you sort of take that up into the big world, the northern hemisphere. Yeah. Most of the people I've met come from some sort of background where, you know, to be special was not so out of the ordinary and in fact quite expected. You're right. Well, they were born into it or...? Yeah, born yeah. into it or, um, you know, let's say um, around New York, mm -hmm. even if you found yourself in the um, suburbs around New York, there was yeah. still an idea that you were part of this fabulous city that was Special. a huge massive culture and mm -hmm. that of course you could be part of it and mm -hmm. of course you could be a writer or a film director or an artist you know it was no big deal yeah whereas here it's a big deal yeah, 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 yeah. whereas emerging out of that flat suburban mm. uh landscape i mm. think it's actually quite a big deal to get up and say i'm going to do this well it's the same i mean we were talking about coming out of the country or coming off a farm and sure. people are like what an artist <laughs> well how are they going to pay for it house or family it's so Aussie that's such an Australian kind of um, dialogue isn't it like well artists what are you gonna achieve by that yeah but did you always know that no I, I certainly knew from quite a young age that I wasn't going to be following the suburban dream mm -hmm. but I didn't know exactly how that would manifest itself mm -hmm. um, I made my own clothes as a teenager and um, there might have been an idea of you know being a fashion buyer, cadet at Myers or something. Um, <laughs> As a yeah, dream. There, there were, yeah, yeah, there yeah. were different possibilities. Yeah, but it's still a creative kind of mm. outcome, but you just hadn't realised yeah. what that what that was. Yeah. Did you did you have kids? No. No kids? No, no. I didn't... I, didn't I came from a, a big struggling family. My father had seven children. And you didn't want to do that? Well, my father actually said to me, don't bother about any of this. Mm -hmm. He almost said, you know... That's enough. I know what that's like inside out, yeah. and you don't have to do it. Yeah, <laughs> fair. I mean, good, probably good advice. I, I've been told that um, in the lives of a lot of women who are 
big achievers, mm. um, their father has to give them that kind of permission. I think it's, I actually think it's quite true. Yeah, I, I can remember the moment that my dad did and it's not, it's a, yeah, it's not yeah. a small thing, you know, like yeah. the moment that your dad says, yeah, I'll, I'll do that, I'll come to VCA and drop that off and it's almost like a tick of oh. approval but so many women and girls have issues with the, that kind of, um, with their dads but, and that then goes on to their partners or... That's right. Or children or mm. whatever. But I also think too that if you think back to uh, 50s Australia mm -hmm. when I was a child, mm. women were something different, right? Yeah. Well, also, and I also, I don't think there would have appeared to be a lot of options mm. apart from being a homemaker and having children. But you could see options, obviously. Well, no, I, I can't. No, I didn't. I didn't see them. I just knew that I didn't want what was being laid out. So I it was like a sort that. of negative. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Sort of, I'm not going to I just do don't that. want that. Yeah, I'll just I'm find whatever else. That. I'm not going to be that. Yeah. It was a sort of no, 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 yeah. no series of decisions. And I love that. I actually love that you're honest about that because, you know, I love that trajectory of you talking about your partying and even the paintings that were about that. And I think a lot of the women that I love and that are interesting have had really wild years where yeah. you can't really account for much. Maybe there weren't many shows or anything then. There was just like a lot of dancing and... And I love that about your yeah, work. Yeah, I, I think it's probably an important uh, rite of passage mm -hmm. to take time out. Yeah, yeah. And, and it forms an experience that then you can paint about for the rest of your life, mm. right? Or at least know that you've done. Well, you're sort of, you're, you're meeting kindred spirits at that time too. Yeah. I didn't really make much at VCA, but you, but I went to some really good parties. <laughs> and, you, yeah. and you meet the people that yeah. you're friends with or yeah. you cross those paths again right. later in your life. It's not about, it's no. not always about making art. It's mm. about sort of living. Mm. And that's why your work so... Powerful. Well, I, I was very lucky in that I, I had a second bout in my early 40s in New York because I was showing with Anina Nose, mm -hmm. which located me in a really good situation. And um, you got to do I, it all again. Yeah, and I was living in New York six months of the year, and you could you could have a, a studio apartment at the Gramercy Park Hotel quite economically and um yeah i was dragged into a sort of downtown scene in the early 90s it was mm. great mm. and you obviously thrive on that like lots of people don't want that but i get it <laughs> well i sort of i think if someone's giving you support you've got to be into what they're into yeah and um anina was very social and yeah. we met a lot of people yeah so you've always you've had a lot of female gallerists yeah mm. not not by choice, though. That's just maybe not your choice. But maybe. <laughs> well, you can never really um, figure out the way that that happens. But that's interesting to me. Well, the, the the person who gave me my break in Europe was a man. Yeah. Okay. Ernst Tilger. All right. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll give him. <laughs> and a and um, now um, probably um, uh, the gallery that I probably talk to most in Europe is some um, transit in Belgium. Mm -hmm. That's a gay couple, mm -hmm. Bert and Dirk. But there, guys. So like yeah, no, you can't really, um, you can't really judge how that works. No, maybe mean. not. No, yeah. No. Well, I think um, we've um, sadly, sadly reached the end of our discussion because mm. otherwise, I feel like we could stay here and settle in and drink another bottle of we wine could. and talk all We could time. very easily. <laughs> but I, I really am very, very thankful for you taking time out. And I've enjoyed it. Meeting in your holiday break and all <laughs> that stuff. Can you imagine going on the ride that Jenny has? 
What a dream. Signing with the two most powerful Australian female art dealers at the very beginning of their careers and then speeding with them through the heights of the booming 80s. I think I have some kind of cross-generational FOMO for all the parties they must have been to. Don't you just love how Jenny talks about having an interior script? As if she can tap into her own personal TV series going on inside her head. I also really respect that when I asked her if she considered herself as much a writer as a painter, she said, it doesn't really matter what you call it. It all comes from the same place and it achieves the same vision. I loved her honesty about making those real life choices, like not having children, or making sure you have a life where you can walk to the shops in bare feet and have a horse in your backyard. After this interview, I felt like all my years partying and exploring were not as wasteful as I originally thought more like a rite of passage that each of us should celebrate. And if you're like Jenny, you might even be able to weave those memories into your work. This conversation was recorded for the series A World of Her Own as part of the exhibition Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. It was recorded by me, Ty Snaith. I'm an artist for those of you who don't know my work. If you enjoyed exploring Jenny's world with me today, you might like to delve into some other worlds by downloading more episodes directly from the ACCA website. Visit www.acca.melbourne where you'll find the World of Her Own link under Programs or from SoundCloud if you visit soundcloud.com forward slash ACCA underscore Melbourne. I would like to give a big thanks to Beck Fari for audio post-production and Melbourne musician Fia, spelt P-H-I-A, for letting us use this track, End of the Day, from her album, The Ocean of Everything.